Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by We Are One Composites, freewheel.co.uk and 1UP Components. If you want a set of carbon wheels designed to be reliable, robust, have an amazing ride feel and to be made to the very highest quality standard, then look no further than We Are One Composites. This team of hardworking, passionate riders from Kamloops in Canada have absolutely nailed it and are producing amazing products that really make the most out of what carbon fibre has to offer. I've been using them for three years with zero issues and my current Faction 29er wheels have remained tight and true through a year of riding already. In fact, they're doing such a good job that We Are One wheels are in massive demand. That demand means that their wheel building is currently maxed out, so we can't offer a discount on complete wheels this month. But We Are One really want to support our listeners, so they're offering you 15% off if you're buying their rim-only products until the end of April, which is pretty close now, so don't miss out. Head over to weareonecomposites.com now and use the code WESUPPLY2021. That's WESUPPLY, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2021 over at weareonecomposites.com now. Freewheel.co.uk is a new cycling website that enables you to shop for a ton of your favourite cycling brands online, but with all sales supported by your chosen local bike shop, meaning that small businesses get a percentage kickback from every sale. In an age where huge online retailers dominate the market, Freewheel is here to support over 400 local bike shops that make up the Freewheel Union. Because let's face it, our local bike shops are important parts of our riding communities and are well worth supporting. So you get the convenience of ordering online, but you still get to support your local bike shop. Head to freewheel.co.uk now and sign up to their mailing list to get a generous 15% off your first order. This is a UK only thing, I'm afraid, so apologies to my listeners elsewhere in the world. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Please make sure you're following the show on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe, where I've got links to all the major platforms there to help you. I'd also love it if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date with what's happening with the show. And it's always great to hear from you in the comments or the messages over there too. All right, this week's episode is also supported by 1UP Components. And I'm joined by two of their founders, Chris Hainan and John Staples, to find out more. 1UP is probably best known now for their EDC tool, which fits in your steer tube. But the company actually started when Chris, John and Sam decided to go all out and make a 42 tooth expander sprocket after being inspired by John's experience with SRAM's XX1. It took off way more than anyone had expected and 1UP was born. We chat about their background in the industry, the early days of 1UP, how they've built the brand since then, the challenges they've faced and where they're heading now. This is a truly inspiring story of three riders committing to follow their passion and it just shows what's possible when good ideas and some good old-fashioned hard work come together. So without further ado, here's Chris Hainan and John Staples. Chris Hainan and John Staples, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Chris, we'll start with you. How's things? Oh, it's great. Yeah, I just got back in from a ride actually and... And uh, the sky is blue, the snow-capped mountains are beaming, so I'm having a good day. Nice. You're based in Squamish, are you? So you've got pretty awesome trail network straight out the door. That's correct. Yeah, it was a strategic choice to um, move to Squamish and be close to trails and in this epicenter, and uh, I think it's paid off well for us. So Very nice. John, how are you doing? Yeah, doing great as well. Uh, as Chris says, the mountains are uh, quite snow-capped right now. We like the freezing level around 1,000 meters, and if it stays there for the wintertime, we can ride bikes all winter or uh, head up the mountain and ski if we want to as well. Very nice. I'm uh, a little bit jealous, but <laughs> I'll get over it. So before we talk about 1UP, it'd be good to find out a little bit about your background. And um, Chris, I guess we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background in riding and then maybe kind of through education and, and work before the days of one up. Sure. So I think I got my first bike at around the age of six and it had a nice banana seat on it and some uh, very high bars and maybe even a flag out the back. Uh, I was quite excited and proud and then moved on and got a BMX pretty quick after that. Um, I grew up in Southern Alberta, so in the prairies, not uh, very far from the mountains. 
but the mountains were close enough by that uh, they they were a dream to get to. Um, I rode in the river valleys and on single track and dry, grassy, uh, steep, rolling hills. And my obstacles were cactuses and and I wore lycra and got into local racing and uh, did that for a little bit. And then when I graduated high school, I moved out to BC as soon as I could because my dream was to work in the bike industry from an early age. I think around 14 or so, I was identified that this is what I want to do with my life. I want to design bikes and be around bikes. And so took some advice um, from uh, actually writing Pete Staysmith at Norco and asked him what I should do to get in the bike industry. And he's directed me off into engineering. So off I went to BC because I knew the bike companies were out in BC and the best trails were there. And I landed in the lower mainland, did a few years there and then into Victoria. Uh, I got exposed to all the North Shore riding and elevated stunts and things that uh, just defied my vision for biking at the time. I couldn't believe what people were riding. And, <laughs> and then it just progressed from there, did my engineering degree and ended back in in uh, North Van for a good good chunk of time. So, yeah. And you've you did you go kind of straight from degree into the bike industry, or was there some some other experience there before you before you made that jump? Right, yeah, I tried to get into the bike industry right away, but it's it's a harder one to crack. So I I actually did some design work um, in microfuel cells for a little bit, and some high tech uh, fuel cell stuff, and then. Uh, I worked for an ocean engineering company doing a rescue submarine for the U.S. Navy. So uh, got a lot of unique and, and varying d- degrees of experience uh, for a few years there. And then um, about three years after I graduated, I happened to be the right place at the right time, knocked on the door at Raceface and, and uh, got my first job in the industry there. Cool. And what did you do at Raceface? Pretty much everything uh, in the engineering world. Um, I started at the bottom and uh, was the test, the test lab monkey, and ran that for a while, and then did drawings and uh, helped out all the other engineers, the senior guys there, and uh, was able to work with some great engineers. So um, learned a ton from them. At the time, Raceface had a machine shop in-house, so that was great experience to be working directly with people programming, running mills, and understanding the process there. And then over time, um, I worked on pretty much all the different components that they they made. So starting with handlebars and stems and seat posts and onto chain guides and uh, developed their pedals, um, and got into cranks. So had a, had a a good variety of, uh, um, products to design. And then as Raceface transitioned away from, uh, having their in-house machine shop, we worked with Taiwan suppliers. And so had a lot of trips out to Taiwan and setting up manufacturing there and working with great vendors in that country nice yeah super varied experience what about you john give us a a little bit of background from your side uh sure um i got into uh bikes a little bit later at least mountain bikes a little bit later i grew up in uh in the country in ontario canada just outside of peterborough a little town called cabin um and it was far enough away from the corner store where we used to go get movies and candy that i had a road bike uh, until i until I went to university. So I bought my first actual mountain bike um, when I was in first year of university in, um, in London, Ontario, at, at uh, the University of Western Ontario, where I was studying mechanical engineering. 
Um, and at the time I was dating a young lady from British Columbia. And so I came and visited her on one of our summers. And, and like Chris said, was blown away by the, by the riding on the North shore. Um, she was friends with a fellow named Steve Savage, who still works for Steed Cycles. So uh, when I was out on that trip, Kim Steed, who owns the place, was getting rid of this Santa Cruz bullet uh, to a 2001 Santa Cruz bullet. Um, so I managed to scrape together the funds to to pay him for that. And that was my second real mountain bike and a significantly more real one than the first one was. The first one was a, <laughs> the first one was a Kona Blast that I think I paid 600 bucks for at the the local cycle path. Um, as far as that, as far as work, uh, before the bike industry, I did both my summer co-ops and my first four years of career for working for John Deere at two different facilities, uh, specifically in their, in their forestry division. So in Ontario, I was working on feller bunchers and, and skids, uh, sorry, not skid steers. And, uh, uh, log loaders. And then when I moved out to BC, I worked for another company called Deer Hitachi Specialty Products um, and working on some other forestry equipment. Also kind of gave me the ability to travel to China and to Japan for the first time because that John Deere facility had a partnership with Hitachi. Um, and then that, that job was about an hour drive from where I was living at the time. And I happened to be checking Craigslist, looking for new employment because I wanted something a little bit different. And there was a job posting for Raceface, which I then looked up where they were because I thought they were on the North Shore. Uh, but at the time they were on in New Westminster and they happened to be about a kilometer from where I was living at the time. So I put my, put my application in and um, was lucky enough to get an interview. And the rest is history there. Perfect. Were you doing similar work there to Chris? Like how, how did you two overlap? Uh, Chris had been there, I believe three years when I started. And when I first came on race face was in the very, or I guess late development uh, of their newer, newer uh, next SL cranks. The ones that launched sometime around 2008, I believe. So they had done the they had done the carbon impregnated aluminum crank back in the um, early 2000s, I believe. And this was the reboot from two from twenty from 2008. Uh, so I believe that a, f- a few months, maybe six months before I started, there was there was quite a team, maybe seven or eight engineers there working on that project so a lot of the a lot of the base development had been done and when i started there was only the person hiring me his boss and then they were hiring me to um to come in and help with that project launching the first or the the most recent next crank in 2008 Uh, so i was kind of there to support the then engineering manager Um, and then a year or so later he left um, and so it was just me on the carbon crank development project. So we got that launched, had a few hiccups in, in the first year and got it, got it um, sailing smoothly after that. In addition to their carbon facility, I also worked on shifting chain rings, which is um, not a particularly helpful skill to have these days. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I developed all of their, their two-by shifting rings at the time as well as their carbon handlebars at the time. Okay, nice. And when did you two kind of cross paths and start to become friends and start scheming? I think we became friends right away. Uh, Raceface was a, a, a fun place to work. Uh, everybody in the design department rode bikes and, and there was a lot of riders in the company at the time. And so, you know, you scheme together and go on trips. And I think that's the beauty of the bike industry is uh, often you work with people that enjoy the same passion as yourself. So you're not just working together nine to five and then go home. You're also going out on the weekends or after work and, and developing those relationships deeper. So um, yeah, we early on, we were going off on 
bike trips on the weekends and uh, um, camping and that type of thing. And um, yeah, probably after a few years working together, became better friends and still riding together. Yeah. Nice. And then uh, our third business partner, Sam, who's not on this call, uh, he, he started working at Race Face about four years after me. Um, so he kind of was the third wheel. Uh-huh. When did the kind of the idea for you guys to get together and create something like some sort of product, even a business around that product, like when did that come about and how did it, how did it come about? I think the, the first, the first time it kind of crossed our mind as something we'd like to do was uh, race Space went through a bankruptcy um, a number of years ago uh, and we all lost our jobs instantly. Uh, they, the banks took it over and kind of closed things down and we were left in limbo and we had this dream job and all of a sudden we didn't and we didn't know what to do. We were like, Oh man, that's uh that was hard pill to swallow. So right away, uh, I think John, myself and Sam and, we talked about, well, could we restart race face or, you know, there's, we, we didn't want to lose our jobs. And that started us spinning into thinking about uh, our own business or race face too. But luckily for us, um, you know, a friendly person came in and, and brought it out of bankruptcy and hired us back and, so we had our, our jobs back and we got to reboot race face, which was great. Um, but that inkling of could we do this on our own had started that seed kind of had started at that point. And then years later, uh, John had an idea for a product. So he can tell you about that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the first product, um, which went gangbusters when it, when it first launched was our 42 tooth um expander sprocket and the uh, the idea behind it um or rather the um the reason that we came up for that to that idea was that um i had purchased xx1 the full drivetrain when it first came out um and a little while later i had to warranty my rear derailleur and the rear derailleurs were three hundred dollars or something at the time because it was the top down the, the very top level group um and I didn't want to buy a new derailleur and I didn't, wasn't able to put anything else on there. Like normally if you, before that, if you had a 10 speed drivetrain, you'd buy an SLX or a Dior to get you, get you through the pinch. So I ended up having to strip all of the XX1 off my bike and put on my old XT stuff while I was waiting for the derailleur to get warrantied. And then once I had put all that back on, I was thinking to myself, and I think it was at Chris's house after a ride when it all happened, well, why don't we just make a why don't we just make a 42 tooth ring that goes behind the 36 that already exists? Um, it's a bit of a weird product because you have to get rid of, you can't add speeds. So you have to get rid of one of the cogs. So you've got this massive jump from the 15 tooth to the 19 tooth, I believe it was at the time. So it was super hacky, but where we lived and where we would typically climb steep things and then, and then rip back down. So having good progression from the, from the 15 to the 19 wasn't all that big a deal for us. Yeah. Um, so as Chris said, we thought it'd be fun just to make a few of these and, and see if we could sell a few and just see what that, what that felt like. Um, we had some prototypes made um, and tried it out and it was, it was pretty good. And then we started getting a little bit nervous because we were at the time we were still working um, at race space. And we, do want, we wanted to do right by them. So we agreed that we'd go and chat with a then boss and be like, and just be open with them and say, hey, we have this idea. I don't think it's a race face idea because it's, it's a really big hack. It's going to avoid the warranty on the rest of your drivetrain. It's got this big clunky shift in the middle. But we'd like to make a few and because we think it'd be fun. Um, and we got the okay to do that. Um, so we made a few. We made a, made a one-page website. Um, actually we, 
we launched a one page website before we'd actually even received the first ones because we weren't sure if it would go anywhere. So we ordered, I think a hundred pieces or something. And then we put up the website and it went on, it went on bikerumor.com. And at the time it was their most hit um, release ever. And, and we sold that hundred on that day. And then we ordered 500 more and we sold that 500 over the next couple of days. And it was just, it just went nuts. Um, And it was super stressful because we had sold this product that existed on our bikes and that we felt was okay, but no one had actually tried it. Um, we didn't, yeah, we were, it was definitely scary. And then it got to the and point where, sorry, I was going to say is that you've got no infrastructure, I guess there's no logistics. There's no, you know, nothing's ready to get Correct. this product out to the world either. Right. Correct. So we had a, we had a web store and, we found a third-party logistics warehouse that we'd use, and we just tried to give this thing a go. At one point on our website, it's, it just had this chart, and it said, if you ordered from us this day, this is the day you'll get your product. If you ordered from us on this day, this is the day you'll get your product. And we just it just went nuts. It just blew up. Um, and shortly after, we had to, had to decide, is this something that we want to run with, or do we want to can this and and forget it ever happened. And so I think we all felt that if we didn't, if we didn't run with it, it would be a big regret. And so we chose to, um, and we, we quit race space, which was pretty hard conversation and, uh, and pretty, and, uh, definitely a big stress on our lives because we hadn't settled any of these things yet, but it had given us enough cash flow that we figured we could come up with something else. So we kind of took that gamble and went for it. And it was just the three of you at that point in time, yeah? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So so where do you go from there then? You've taken, obviously you've taken a good chunk of orders and there's a lot of, I guess, good indications that things can work with this one product. But as we know, the bike industry can move quite fast and a product that's desirable one day can be completely either irrelevant or you know, designed out of the market you know, very, very quickly. Absolutely. How did you and go we, from, sorry, go on. I said, absolutely. And, and it was our, was our fear and that this product would only be a six month product. And so we were basing future, we were basing that cash flow. Uh, we were basing the idea that that cash flow would disappear very quickly. Um, it ended up that that product, we were selling that product for three and a half years. So it, and we ended up getting very lucky on it, um, largely in part uh, due to Shimano not launching a competitive drivetrain for a very long time. Uh, hindsight being what it is, we now know they're working on steps, which is why they, which is why they weren't working on eleven speed at the time. Uh, uh, but we knew we had we knew we had a very short amount of time, so we we got into chain guides really quickly. We got into some shifting rings, and but none of these things. I held a candle to the sales we were getting from this 42 tooth sprocket. Um, and so as it dropped off over the course of three years, we had barely been able to, to um, reach revenue levels that were the same as, as we got right off the hop with that, with that um, expander sprocket. Uh, so on the, for the first three years, our sales were quite flat. They were hundred yeah. percent expander sprockets year one and kind of like 50% year two, or 50% year three, and then they went to nothing pretty quickly. And then all these other products that were pumping out, all these different chain ring sizes, different um, chain guides. Uh, we did expander sprockets for, um, to be bolted onto SRAM drivetrain. So when that big, the original 42s you could pry off, and when they wore out, you could you could sandwich these ones new on. And so all of those products that we, we probably put out 15 products and they, had the same revenue as this one that we had off the start, but wow. we were getting there and we were, we were continuing to um, get into new, new regions. And every time we entered a new product line, we got a, we got a bump from that pedals are probably the next really big step function one. Cause so Chris designed our, all of our pedals. Um, and then after that, uh, probably EDC was uh, the next really big one for us. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that feels like your best known product in this current era of of one up anyway. Like it's the one that you see on so many, certainly like EWS pros bikes and 
it's yeah it's a very different or at the time very very different product that solved an issue a lot of us had so yeah tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that where that came from because it's it's quite a bold move to put something out there that is very different to what everyone else is doing yeah it actually started as a bit of a hold my beer moment because at the, at the time I, I find that the bike industry will go through these um occasionally there'll be a like a a challenge to see who can create the lightest thing in this category. So it went through it with handlebars for sure. And then people kind of back off and they realize what a good handlebar weight should be. It happened with carbon 29 or hardtails for a little while, kind of in the, in the 20 early 2010s. Um, and we were just happened to be sitting there and checked out bike rumor and pink bike as we normally do on, on in the morning. And I think it was, uh, Kane Creek's launched, uh, they bought EE the lightweight road brand and they had produced this ee nut which replaced your star nut and your top cap and this aluminum bolt and it was 10 grams and so they had created the world's lightest um, headset preload system and i was like come on we can do better than that so we so i was like what if you just threaded your steerer tube and then you'd have this thing that weighs like five grams so it started there and then i think it was sam said well now that you have the big hole in the top of your steer tube what are you going to store down there and that was the kind of aha moment uh, and from there from there the probably the edc and the tap were equally difficult projects because the getting stuff to all cram into that little thing was challenging on its own but then trying t- the only way we could sell that product is if we had a safe, reliable, repeatable way for you to put threads in your thousand dollar fork. Yeah. So that was the, yeah, the tap nailing the tap, answering the tap question was probably the, what allowed it to go forward. Was there much resistance on that? Cause I know I get the impression a lot of people would be like you say, quite nervous about effectively machining their thousand pound brand new fork and putting a thread in it. It's actually super easy to do having done it fairly recently, but have you had a lot of pushback on that? Uh, certain, there's definitely um, chatter about it, but there's we. I mean, we we've sold a lot of them. There are a lot of them out there, and we have yet to see any failure that has propagated out of the threads. Um, and as well, at the time that we launched it, we knew there was going to be pushback, so we contacted both Fox and SRAM and our Fox and Rockshox and sent them. I think 20 pieces each and just said, Hey, test these in your, in your test lab. We'd like you to, we'd like you to approve them for use. Um, and in both cases they did, um, to our knowledge, they weren't able to fail them in any way, even under test conditions. Um, that said, SRAM has remained quiet on the subject, although our, I, we don't believe that they're, um, denying any warranty claims and Fox have a public statement that basically says, um, they'll warranty any fork problems so long as they don't propagate out of the thread and then, okay. uh, which we haven't seen any of those yet either. So, but I think the reason for that is how dead simple the tapping is. I've tapped a lot of holes freehand over the years and I probably got more crooked than straight. <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, so having this, having this holder that aligns to the high tolerance outside of the steer tube and then also works out works as a bottom out so it's controlling how plumb the threads are as well as how deep they are and you can drop it onto any fork even if even if the steer the original steer tube was cut at some kind of janky angle uh, this thing will still put in a straight thread so getting that nailed was was the big thing to have that let it work at the end of the day we think everyone should be riding with tools and i don't think you should have a big hunk of steel in your pocket or strapped to your lower back so the steer tube is pretty much the ideal place to put them yeah it is a it is a very nicely designed piece of kit like you literally couldn't do it wrong i don't think with that tool that you've designed to thread the steerer which seems really straightforward and simple but that kind of elegant design is actually really hard to achieve isn't it there's a lot of thought that goes into that yeah exactly there were there were a lot of prototypes probably more prototypes of taps than there were of the edc tool itself um i i typically design in metric because i'm from canada 
Um, and bike industry is largely in metric. And so I was, I, we did a lot of measuring on all these different steer tubes because, because before we launched this thing, okay, well, what kind of, how big, how much of the market can we actually tap? Or are there, are there, are there prominent forks that are well outside of what you can do? So I measured a whole bunch of forks, tried to find everything that had every fork that had a tapered steer tube from the last eight years to, to see what the dimensions were. And then being that I'm a brilliant, uh, metric designer, I came up that I needed an M 25.5 by one tap, which, which if you, if you can, can translate into Imperial is pretty much an inch, uh, dash 24, which is a standard tap. So I had all of these original prototypes that are, that were effectively an, an Imperial tap made in metric. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so how long does it take to, to create a product like edc then like how much time from when you first come up with the concept to getting it through all the different prototype stages and of development and getting it out to the market uh we we have we have very quick um prototype facilities so we can get uh, we can get products made in about seven days um and then a couple days for shipping so we can iterate very, very quickly with actual materials. Um, we've recently got a 3D printer, which is, which is, which should speed that up a little bit further, but without the ability to run most of the products you make, but fit and function should be quite good. Uh, yeah. So we, we can iterate prototypes very quickly. Um, and then depending on the product, like EDC had a lot of prototypes because there was a lot of different fits. Um, that we were trying to achieve. So I think it was about a year from first prototype to production, maybe a year and a half from first prototype to production. The quickest products are probably in the six month zone. If it's a matter of you pretty sure it's going to work, you get your prototype, you send it to production. Um, and longer ones are in the 18 month to two year. If there's, if you really want to get some ride testing on them and under, try to understand the things that you don't know that you don't know. Yeah, understood. And was that another kind of one of those products of yours that really took off? Did that one kind of start selling at quite a rate straight away? Did you sort of, yeah, because you kind of created, I would say you created a kind of modern on-bike storage kind of niche, right? We, yeah. we had water bottles and stuff back in the day. All that went away. It got stuck on our backs and we'd sort of forgotten about storing things on bikes. And maybe there was some straps kicking around, but nothing particularly elegant, I guess. And you were, I think, the first people to to do something elegant in that space, which has definitely created more and more demand in that area. Yeah, it, it would. It went off really well. We launched it at Sea Otter, and um, we won the the Best of Things Award from from a magazine that we were there. And uh, yeah, everyone kind of rushed to our booth once they heard it was there because it was it was interesting and allegedly at that sea otter there wasn't a lot of new stuff that had been launched and we had this very interesting setup um, i remember it selling very well but then i was also surprised how many people hadn't heard about it or like for for how well i thought it had had sold even here in squamish you'll see you'll see packs of 15 or 20 riders and i'm, I'm looking at their creeping out their bikes that wonder if they're running edc and i'm often surprised how many people aren't um, so I think there's a lot more growth to go as, and then even year two, like the year after we launched it at Sea Otter, um, there were still people coming by who had never heard of this thing and they were blown away on year two. So yeah, it's been, it's been good. And as we, even though the EDC itself hasn't changed much in the V2 version that we, uh, launched uh, about a week ago, the, the only real changes on the tool itself was that I, I made the main body of it ovalized so that it would fit in the oval inner tubes of um, Fox 38 forks. As well, I made the chain breaker and the spoke key steel to uh, to add a bit of strength to them. But the body, the tool itself hasn't changed much. Uh, what has changed is um, us offering more ways for you to mount it on your bike. Uh, Chris designed uh, a stem that had a preloader based in uh, built into it. Uh, we recently launched EDC Lite, which uh, is EDC, but without all of the extra tools, it's just your multi-tools, just your, your two to eight millimeter hexes. And it's, 
and it sits above your star nut so you don't need to tap it. So even though we haven't seen any issues with the tapping, it's there are still some people out there um, who will never put a tap on the top of their steer tube. So we're trying to address those in different ways. Um, EDC Threadless uh, also just launched, which in works a bit... Uh, you drop it in from the top and there's a bolt that comes in from the bottom to preload your headset instead of using a threaded preload cap on top. Okay. Uh, um, and it's uh, another way that if you are someone who doesn't want to tap their steer tube, that you can, that you can ensure you can mount an EDC in your bike. Yeah. Where, where do all these ideas come from? Is there, is it feedback from customers? Are you, to, are you out talking to people about why have you not got an EDC tool fitted? Like, uh, how do you decide what, where to go with product? Uh, we're, we're definitely not pointing to people and saying, why don't you have an EDC? Although sometimes I feel like we should, cause there, I, I, I don't think you should ride with that one, but I'm biased. Um, as far as the broader question about where do we come up with products? Uh, I think the answer to that has always been that we want to make the parts that we want on our own bikes and in in going out and riding at lunch and riding with the people that you work with, um, you kind of come up with those ideas. You'll, you'll just be, you'll just be chatting on the way up the fire road and say, wouldn't it be cool if we had one of these or wouldn't it be cool if we had one of those. And I think as long as, as long as your team is out there riding and thinking about these kind of things that the products kind of come up with themselves in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's always, uh, it's always a strategy of ours like to to be thinking how do we make our ride better and um you know all of our products are designed to be a product that we would want to put on our bicycles it's not to serve um you know a specific customer's need or uh someone wants a cheaper version of something so we should do that it's it's really how do we solve this problem and what's the best way and then um how does that make our ride better and if it's sort of the vetting process for most of our designs is is does it fit those and then we do then we go through the process of uh quickly figuring out could we make it at a reasonable price to solve that issue that that makes a, a decent enough business case out of it so yeah you've probably seen from our from our product offerings we don't have it's not very deep there's not a very long list of handlebars you can get from us um, it's not to say that you could never have two different levels for instance we have alloy pedals and we have composite pedals and the reason for that is that some people in our company prefer one and some people prefer the other there's there's pros and cons to both, but we're never going to create a 400 gram 6061 aluminum handlebar that nobody wants on their bike, um, and that's kind of and it's kind of refreshing because when we were at uh, Raceface, you would get requests from an OEM saying we want a Raceface handlebar on this bike, but we can only spend seven dollars and thirty three cents on it. So you need to make us a handlebar for that that has race face on it. And it's not a very fun project as an engineer. It's not a product that anybody wants. And it's, and at the end of the day, I don't think it's good for your brand if if you then become the bar that somebody takes off their bike so they can put on something better. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. So yeah, where would you say you've pitched the brand? Are you kind of, you're effectively saying you're going after higher end of the market? Yeah, I think so. We're going after the higher end of the market, but at prices that are reasonable for what you're getting. Um, yeah. I think that might have been one of the one of the challenges that we've uh, had to overcome in in kind of growing the brand we, from transitioning from a value brand, which is what we saw ourselves when we first launched. When we first launched this forty two tooth sprocket, um, and we at the time we pitched that it was ninety percent of the range for. 10% of the cost or something because it was a hundred dollars and a, a full XX one group was a thousand. Um, and then transitioning from there into a top brand that just sells their products for a reasonable price. Like we, we make products that compete with the best in the market in, in a lot of different areas. Um, and we just don't, 
put a price tag on them that is as high as, as a lot of those brands would. Yeah. So, cause you, I guess with your business, you kind of, you created a product and then built a brand around it rather than creating a brand and then made products to fit in it. Does that make Correct. sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. Do you think, would you have done it the other way around in hindsight? Like, has that made life harder for you or? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, I, I don't think so because I, I don't think people care what your brand is. If you're, if you're a new brand, nobody, nobody buys into that. They buy into, is this person solving a problem for me? Is this a product I need on my bike? And if you can be known as the brand that makes those type of products, then, then it takes care of itself. Yeah. Give us a, give us a bit of a feel for yeah how the brands evolved over time. Like how, how big are you now as a company? Well, we're 16 people uh, right now. So we're still pretty small and nimble. Um, and the first few years we were, we were very small in, uh, in size. Uh, so 16, we're getting into, um, you know, we're, we're solving more of the logistics problems and, the business end, that's kind of what we've been focused on in the last few years, uh, having kind of grown out of small facilities and small ways of doing things. And we're maturing that way. Um, and uh, I think it's it's becoming more and more complex to, to manage the, the number of parts that we have in, in our business. And then we ventured into a bit more of products that can be OEM um, purchased, so they make more sense. Uh, when we started, everything was kind of an aftermarket um, upgrade or or hack or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then as we've grown, even pedals, I mean, pedals don't come with bikes, so they're an aftermarket product um, and tools again. Uh, but now we're maturing and, and we do have solutions that that could come directly on your bike. Um, and chain guides were kind of the break in for the OEM world. Uh, now handlebar stems, seat posts, seat posts have really brought in an option there to to expand our OEM. So that's that's part of our growth. Uh, I think partnering with Yeti and and uh, developing, you know, a, a combined race team there. So we we help sponsor their their factory team, but then we also have the the one up Yeti um, team that that we're a part of, and those are all exciting milestones for us uh, as we sponsor more athletes and and kind of grow the product offering so. yeah and how how big of a challenge has covid been for you guys you, you mentioned that you're kind of been putting a lot of work into the business and the logistics side of things and then covid comes along and i'm guessing adds quite a lot of challenge to all of that how's it been for you guys yeah it's definitely been uh it's been a challenge it's been i mean we're i consider us very lucky in in the world as far as how COVID has affected our business, because if anything, it's made it grow. Um, we, when COVID first hit, um, and it was um, primarily in in China, but sounding quite serious, we assumed that Taiwan was going to get hit as well, and they were going to get shut down. And so, right, right at the very beginning of of COVID, and quite luckily, we decided, you know what. If Taiwan gets shut down for a few months, everyone's going to dump their orders in. There's going to be this huge backlog. So let's just double all, all of our POs to Taiwan so that when they come out of their lockdown, we'll be at the front of the line still at least and we'll get back on our feet. Um, and Taiwan absolutely nailed it as far as countries go. I think their top two, maybe South Korea was maybe the other one that did better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no lockdown. Um, and so they kept producing parts. So early in COVID, we had lots of product. <laughs> and, then, and then as, as, as um, the, rec, um, the rec area of the business grew or of the world grew and people wanted to get outside because they couldn't hang out with their friends anymore, the whole bike industry 
blew up and then lead times got really long. So right now our supply is pretty stable. We're stocked out here and there. Um, but we could be selling a lot more if we had a lot more because we're dealing with 300 day, 400 day lead times on some of our key products where typically those would be in the 60 to 90 day region. So it's just throwing the whole industry for a loop trying to, and then a bunch of panic buying. Like I, I joke that the bike industry is kind of in the toilet paper point portion of the COVID thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's buying it all up. I tried to, pa- I tried to panic by, uh, a chain, a cassette, and some brake pads, and no one would take my order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I panicked too late. Yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild time, isn't it? For sure. So, yeah, what what have been uh, what have been the highlights for you of of growing one up to where it is now? Because it's uh, you've been going a fair while now, and it's like you say, you get into a, be a kind of relatively big company in the in the mountain bike world. At least sixteen people is it's not small these days. Yeah, I think the the freedom to run the company the way the way we like. Um, obviously, Chris, Sam, and I have have had a lot of bosses over the years. We've had really good bosses. We've had not so good bosses, um, and we've, we've. I think my one of my biggest highlights is just to be to be the kind of boss that you want to be. Uh, we've implemented profit sharing with employees. We give back to the community. Um, we give back to uh, to the world with with different charities. So I think just being able to to be a good company has been a highlight of us for me at least yeah you have the slogan work less ride more how does that embody within the business is it is it obvious when you step in the door uh i don't i don't know if it's obvious when you step in the door but uh i think if you get to know all of our employees uh, one of the things we've made a prerequisite is everybody in the company uh from from the last to the to the top is is an accomplished rider, and and the reason we we kind of go for people that have a decent skill level in riding is they're all riding our prototypes. They're all a part of the design process in the sense that it, we're relying on them to feedback ideas and solutions and give input into into one up so um it's exciting to to have as many people that are passionate about riding and and then what we do is um we we do try to go for a company ride as much as we can it's getting harder the bigger we are it's it's not really happening all of us together but uh we get out for rides during work um once a week or so we also uh, took on, I think this was one of my highlights is when we moved to every other Friday off in the company. Um, and that just freed up some flexibility there for work-life balance. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you're able to get out and ride a bit more, or have an extra long weekend. Uh, it's, it's shifting now. We have people that we don't all take the same Friday off. Um, we need to get orders out. We need to respond to customers. So it's scattered now, but having that, being able to offer that to our employees, that, that work-life balance is great. And so I think that's one of the, the milestones that I've really appreciated in my own life. And I think our employees appreciate it too. So. Very nice. Yeah. And is it is it hard to keep coming up with fresh ideas? I mean, the mountain bike world is always refining and improving the products that we ride and that we love do you do you find it harder to create product now uh it's it's funny every once in a while we we get worried about it we get to the end of a product and we think oh man what's going to be next and then it doesn't take very long uh, a good ride and a good pub session and all of a sudden we have more products than we can possibly <laughs> Uh, execute on so um i think one of our our skill sets so far has been um trying to keep in tune with what people want and what we want and how to make our bikes better and so that that part of the business being that you know we're founded by engineers that 
have that background, that was almost the easy part part for, in my perspective, it's the execution and growing a business and filling in all those areas that we, we didn't have experience with that I felt was more challenging for us to figure out logistics and how do you, how do you serve 74 countries and, uh, ship people product on time from locations around the world and dealing with duties and all those kinds of things and manufacturing overseas. And so have you enjoyed that side of things? Yeah. Yes. And no, I mean, some of the challenges are, hard and give you headaches uh but when you overcome them obviously i think everybody enjoys solving a puzzle so uh, so yeah it's it's neat what every time we take a, a next step of of opening up some new chapter or or whatnot is is exciting yeah early early on we didn't realize we had to pay tax in the uk so <laughs> things like things like that it's like oh what do you mean we have to pay the uk government some money <laughs> because we're shipping <laughs> to their citizens so yeah a bunch of that things like we ship it we ship in a lot of countries we have um shipping warehouses in five countries we've, we, man- we manage seven different websites like there's all sorts of logistics so that we can get our products to the end user with the minimum amount of uh tax to that user we don't like we don't like having we don't like footing duties onto our customers so i think um in canada the us uk eu um, those when you buy from us all of those regions show up to you duty free and with that included where 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 it's typical for VAT to be included um and so that's not that's not been any small feat and you guys have taken that on yourselves rather than kind of paying someone else to do it. Do you, if it seems like you, uh, you relish a bit of a challenge, whether it's engineering or elsewhere. A little bit of a challenge. We, there are people that do that, but we, they typically will take a big chunk. Um, and so for us to, us to stay profitable and for us to keep our prices as low as we can, um, we, ch- we choose to, to try to understand those problems ourselves. Fair play. Good on you. So I noticed uh, on your website, I think, that you donate, is it 1% of sales? Um, to, is it to the planet effectively? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, we, early on in the, in the company, we decided we wanted to commit 1% of our sales to various charities. And um, I think we were inspired by the 1% for the planet, uh, what they do. Um, but we didn't want to necessarily def- be confined by uh, specifics of that program, but we wanted to commit to that 1%. So we set up that program and have done that ever since we started. Um, and right now it's, it's divided between three areas. One is trails, um, trail societies, uh, people developing trails. Uh, two is to charities that are around bikes. So whether that's um, World Bicycle Relief in Africa or uh, Trips for Kids, which is a program that um, helps get inner city kids out and experience mountain biking for the first time uh, when they're generally not exposed or have the means to. Um, and then the other third of our commitment is to the planet so we we like environmental um, organizations like rainforest alliance uh, and and kind of the the goal there is we like to play in this playground we want to protect it and preserve it for generations to come so we are proud that we can we can participate and, and help up other organizations that are doing great things. So, um, it's been, it's been a, a great part of one up that we, we all like and and participate in. And it's something we also look to our employees for suggestions on the next year as we expand where, who, who else is there out there that we want to be partnering with? So. 
fair play good on you that's awesome stuff so what's yeah what's next for one up is there anything you can uh you can tell us about or tease us about anything that you're working on or that's coming soon silence that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always a it's it's always one of those questions you fear to answer because you want to keep everything <laughs> secret uh but uh, we're going to keep making bike parts and there's more areas on the bike that we haven't uh, developed. And one of our philosophies there, as John had mentioned, is not to go deep and have multiple lines in products. Uh, so we like to take on the challenge of a new product offering somewhere else on your bike. So um, it's, it's one of the challenges with COVID right now is actually developing new product. I feel uh, factories are maxed out um, and getting quotes or, or production in play. It, we don't even know where things are going to fall. So normally we have a pretty standard release understanding of, okay, we're going to prototype and do some first production and then schedule production and it'll, it'll hit, you know, six months, eight months down. But now with lead times of 300 and 400 days, it's kind of the unknown. Are we actually going to get this product once it's released or do we have to wait a whole year before it actually comes out? So that that's probably one of the biggest hurdles we're going to face in this next year as, as the pandemic kind of flushes itself out. So yeah, it feels like there. we're going to see a lot of delayed product launches in the yeah. next 12 months by the sounds of things. Yeah, I think so. Lucky enough, we we have a strong product line, so we're not worried about that. Uh, but it would be, if, we, if it wasn't the case, you'd probably see some things sooner rather than later. <laughs> Put it that way. Which makes me a little Very bit le- more, hesit- more hesitant to talk to you about it because I don't know what it's going to launch. <laughs> <That's fair laughs> it might not That's be for enough. a year and a half. What happened to that thing he mentioned on the downtime product, I guess? Oh, I don't know. It's in a, it's in a ship somewhere, <laughs> stuck in a canal. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> well, while we've got some of, the, some of the top engineers in the business on the call, uh, tell us a little bit about maybe some of the other things that you've been using, riding, trying that have impressed you in the last few months. Is there anything that stood out that you've, you've tried that isn't one of your products? Um, I've been loving the EXT suspension that I put on my, my stump jumper, both front and rear. And it's been pretty buttery smooth. Like the, that little coil that they stick underneath the air spring on your shock is, is pretty crazy how, how supple it is off the top. Interesting. How does the, the damping feel like? Is it, is it anything particularly special there? Is it more just a supple ride? Um, it feels, it feels like it has just heaps of traction compared to what was on there before. Um, uh-huh. I'm not, yeah, I'm not a suspension specialist like, like, um, our employee Ben, but he set it up for me and it's just, just great. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I've heard good things, but not had the chance to try it. What about you, Chris, anything you've been trying? Uh, I just wrote a forbidden, uh, Druid the other day, uh, which was great. And it was a, you know, an eye opening experience to try a different, type of suspension platform, um, see the pros and the cons. And, uh, it's, it's one of the fun things about one up is being a components company. You have to think through how do your parts work with every other kind of bike out there, as opposed to being a bike company, you can just think about your own frame. So, um, we're always trying different things, whether it's an e-bike or a, uh, a new suspension platform or a new suspension just to wrap our heads around what's out there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'd like to explore a bit more on how riding is changing there. And then uh, some of the guys went to the specialized, um, e-bike launch that just happened recently and were quite impressed with their new motor. So yeah, those are kind of the, areas that interest me yeah anything out there that you guys have seen but not been able to get your hands on or swing a leg over yet that you particularly want to try not that i can think of um being here in squamish we we have 
pretty good access to a lot of bikes. There's three stores in town that carry a lot of them. Um, product launches often happen in town or up in Whistler. There's a huge uh, chunk of riders in town. Um, so you might be able to sneak a peek at something. Don't tell their supplier or their sponsors. <laughs> you can get your hands on most stuff then. <laughs> yeah, get, get, get our hands on most stuff or at least before it's really readily available in the market, we can have a look at it. Nice. Sounds like you're in the right place for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, a lot of people that listen, I guess, uh, like myself, you know, they, they want to know how to go about getting into the bike industry, how to, how to find a career in the bike industry. Is there any advice that you guys would, would give to people that are keen to get involved, whether that's from the engineering side or, or other elements of the industry? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a question that we get asked a lot um, from young engineers often uh, wanting to get in the industry. And I like to pass on what was passed on to me. And there's kind of two parts, two ways you can get into the industry. And one is if you're wanting to be in the design world, um, it's nowadays it's probably almost essential to have an engineering degree. Uh, back in the day, you could work your way up. And if you're a, a smart, a smart guy, you can, um, you know, learn from, from the factory floor and develop skills and, and move your way up. And there's lots of options there too. You don't need to be an engineer to be a part of, part of a, a, a company. Um, so engineering is great as a background, but things that we look for are people that have good bike knowledge. So, that's whether you've worked in a bike shop, uh, you've been a mechanic. Um, our latest hire was a World Cup mechanic um, for popular race team. And so has some great skill set there that they developed. And uh, But we have quite a diverse range of people that have different backgrounds, but they, they'll bring something to the table, whether that is even you know, technical service writing from, from the mechanics and, uh, from good customer service experience, uh, and then, you know, sales, you can bring in sales skills from another industry as well. So, um, I think perseverance is key in trying to get into the bike industry, uh, make yourself known and, and introduce yourself to, to companies. Um, I feel that's a good way for any job is get to know the people and figure out how you can fit into their company and, and bring something to it as opposed to just sending off a CV or, and hoping that someone's going to notice you. Yeah. Good advice. Anything you'd add to that, John? I don't think so. That pretty much covers it off. Um, I would, I would double up on Chris saying it takes some perseverance. Um, it's, there's a lot of people who want in, um, you really need to, to show how you're different, um, show pictures of your bike, show how, um, how much you, how much you enjoy riding. Just try to make yourself stand out, show, drop by with a case of beer. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to, <laughs> to make yourself memorable, but, um, it is, it is competitive and, um, yeah. So persevere is something you really want. Keep gaining your skills, wrench on your own bike, things like that. Good stuff. All right. Well, uh, it's been super interesting chatting and finding out more about you guys, more about where one up components came from and, and where it's heading. And yeah, looking forward to seeing, seeing more from you guys over the coming months and years when, uh, hopefully the supply chain starts to function a bit better again and <laughs> we can get more products out there. So yeah, if people want to find out more about one up, where should they head? Where's the best place for them to look? One up components.com. All right. We will uh, we'll put some links in the show notes for that. Is there? There's an Instagram account, I guess. We'll put some social media links in there as well. Uh, definitely, yeah. Um, one of components on Instagram, and one of components on Facebook. Good stuff. Nice one. Thanks a lot for your time. It's been super interesting. And uh, yeah, take care. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. All right. That's it for this episode with Chris and John. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. If you want to find out more about 1UP's products, then head over to 1UPcomponents.com. 
A big thank you to freeworld.co.uk for supporting this episode of the show. If you want the convenience of shopping online but still want to support your local bike shops, then Freewheel is the place to do it. You can get 15% off your first order by heading to freewheel.co.uk now and signing up to their mailing list. It's a UK anything, I'm afraid, so apologies to my listeners elsewhere in the world. Also, a massive thank you to We Are One Composites. If you're looking for top quality carbon wheels, then We Are One is the place to go. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off rim-only products until the end of April using the code WESUPPLY2021 at the checkout on weareonecomposites.com. That's WESUPPLY, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2021. All the links are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on our brand new spring and summer 2021 merch, as well as all the regular favourites by heading over to downtimepodcast.com for slash shop, with all the proceeds going to help improve the podcast. All right, that's it for me for now. You know what to do. Please keep telling your mates about the show, spread the word, put it on your social media, share the episodes. It all makes a massive difference and it helps me keep this thing going and bringing you new episodes every week. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, then a review on iTunes is really helpful too. Okay, we're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride.